May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. The story of Pentecost uh, is often portrayed as quite tame, really. Um, a group of men, sometimes they include a few women, sitting quietly around with gentle little tongues of flame, so it was a very nice and orderly affair, almost Anglican. But in fact, it wasn't like that at all, was it? It was dramatic, it was filled with noise and light, and, and it absolutely changed the people who were involved in it. And this was a group of men and women whose last question to Jesus is, is now the time when the kingdom of Israel, when the kingdom of God is restored to Israel? They were still waiting for what everyone else was waiting. The Romans kicked out, the Davidic king restored. Even after Jesus had died and they'd spent 40 days with the risen Jesus, they still didn't get it. And they were hiding in a room, terrified that they were going to be found and nailed to a cross like Jesus. And then along comes the Spirit. And not only do they get it, they start to understand what all Jesus had told them was about. But suddenly they were outside speaking, telling people about it, noisily in the languages that people could understand. It absolutely changed them. And the Spirit of God kept working. Like we think, oh, well, that was it. But actually, that wasn't it. That was the beginning. And I'm reading a book at the moment, which is called Tried by Fire. And it's about, well, you can tell, it's about the history of the church and the persecution of the church. And what struck me when it talked about the early church was how this group of people carefully planned where they would go next. Like we hear, tradition says, this person went here, this person went here. But when you hear it all in one hit, they all went in different directions across the Roman Empire and beyond. They sat down and said, you go here, I'll go here, you go here, Thomas, you go to India. And off they went. And nearly every single one of them died in the process crucified, beaten to death, stoned to death, flayed alive, the lucky ones were beheaded. There they were, hiding in a room, and then suddenly they were out in the world, being driven into places that they never thought they'd go to, offering hope and peace to the world. And that story of hope, offering of hope and peace has kept going. A couple of weeks ago, General Synod, one of our archbishops, our new archbishop, uh, Don Tamahiri, reminded us that most of the missionaries in this land were Māori. We kind of had the idea of Englishmen wandering around being the missionaries in this land. And there were some important English missionaries, British missionaries. But actually, the gospel was sown across this land by Māori missionaries. And in May, we remember a number of those. I mean, Don said, Archbishop Don said, there were about 500 of them. On Tuesday, we remembered Piripiri Tomata Akura. The story of the Māori missionaries in this diocese is really important because they are the seed sowers across the diocese. They were the ones who sowed the seed. Sure, English missionaries came along later, like Brown and William Williams down on the East Coast, 
But the seed was sown by people like Pitipi. And Pitipi had been a slave up in the Bay of Islands. And so there he'd come into contact with the missionaries. But he'd never been one of the uber-keen guys up there. No one would have said, this is the guy who's going to be a missionary when he goes home. But when he went home, he took with him on bits of paper passages from Scripture and he'd memorised some of the himine. And when he went home, he began to preach the gospel. The Spirit of God worked through this man who no one really thought was ever going to be much in terms of the Christian stakes. And he sowed the seeds on the East Coast. So when the Ngāti Pro talk about the coming of the gospel, they talk about Pitipi. And they talk about how they had to, uh, what's the phrase, they had to rethink their knowledge of the world in light of this new knowledge that came. It wasn't something that English brought and they just accepted. They heard the gospel and they reconsidered how they understood the world. And one of the things that Pitipi taught was that even if when, the, when they went into battle, there would be rules around that. Sound familiar? And so when he led a war party, so he was asked to lead a war party because he was a rangatira, he said, these are the rules, these are the how we're going to fight. And they didn't destroy the waka, and they didn't destroy the food crops, and they won the battle, and they left the people alone in the pan. Te whanau apanui remembered that. They remembered the compassion and the mercy that was shown by Ngāti Pirō at the end of the battle. And his mana grew as a result. And so eventually stories went back up to Auckland of whole villages down the east coast that would stop on Sunday, the Lord's Day. They read the scriptures that he had took with them. They sang the waiata that he had learned and taught them. And they said, you need to send some missionaries down to the east coast because there's some amazing stuff going on down there. So William Williams came down and our diocese was born when he built the mission station of Wairangahika. He didn't bring the gospel. That was already sown. He was just building on the work of Taumata, Pitipi Taumata Kura. So this is, this is some areas of Tiki Tiki where he started that mission work and it's built in part in honour of him. And the story of the Spirit's work of taking people, unlikely people, and doing amazing things continues in our church today. <coughs> A couple of weeks ago I was at our General Synod and, well, you know, you think General Synods, they're kind of boring and, uh, but actually ours are never boring Um, and I think they're an example of the Spirit of God working through people to do some amazing things and there are lots of stories I could tell and when Tonga comes out I hope you kind of grab that and read some of those stories. Um, This picture you can see our three Archbishops up the front, Archbishop Philip. Uh, Winston, Archbishop Winston in the middle, who uh, announced his retirement. He's going to uh, Cambridge University in England to lecture there, and our new Archbishop, Don Tamahedi, from Gisborne, Nati Pirodi. So they kind of ran the General Synod between them. One of the moments for me that um, was a moment of pride, really. Uh, was uh, the issues around climate change. So one of my roles uh, in a previous life when I was doing youth ministry was I was co-hotu for the Toro Youth Ministry Centre. And it was at a time when Three Tikanga Youth Ministry was under a lot of pressure because it has quite a considerable budget. And there was at least one bishop who was rubbing his hands with glee and thought, 
If I could close all that three tikanga youth ministry stuff down, we could have that budget. Wouldn't that be great? Think what I could do with that. And there are still people who think like that today. And so one of my jobs was actually to help the young people gather together and rethink what it would look like for young people in our church to gather together and what they would need to resource them to do that. And one of the things we created in that, by holding that space open, was a thing called the Three Tikanga Youth Synod. And a few years ago, the young people who came to that from Polynesia said, the big issue for us is climate change. Like in New Zealand, we keep thinking it's something that's going to happen in the future. You know, you read comments in the paper about, well, we can't do too much to our economy at the moment because it'll cost too much. As if climate change isn't costing us already. Every time those big storms come, that's costing us. Uh, so they came and said, oh, this is costing us big time. The storms are getting more ferocious. They're becoming more common. The sea is rising. Some of our really low-lying islands are starting to disappear. This is a real issue for us, and we need help. And so those young people then went to General Sitter and said, we need your help in providing training for our young people so that they can help their villagers think about what needs to be done in the villages before the storms hit, and then to identify who the vulnerable people are, how to keep them safe. And so those training programs were designed, were designed, they have been delivered, and those young people are trained, and they're continuing to deliver those trainings across those Polynesia, um, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, American Samoa, and they've had to use them. So at this general synod, those young people came back and they said, we want a climate change commissioner, and we want that person based in Suva. So there's a bit of discussion about whether that person should be in Fiji or in New Zealand, or kind of stationed in both. But this is an initiative from those young people, because climate change is their issue. Like us older people, we can kind of pretend it's not going to affect us very much, but actually those young people it will affect them. And so here they are providing leadership to our church and saying, this is affecting us now, we need to act on this now, please, this is what we need. And I felt such pride that I had played this tiny little role in holding that space open so those young people could gather and now provide that leadership for our church. And one of those young people, Isaac from Hawke's Bay provided leadership in other moments as well, and I'll get to that. I guess the big issue that has been plaguing General Synod for the last six years has been uh, whether we would authorise the blessing of uh, same-gender marriages. So, uh, again, that was the big issue. And this is our Dean, Ian Render, who's uh, gay and married, speaking at General Synod. We have worked hard at this as a church. We've had hermeneutic hui's where we talked about how we read the Bible so we could actually hear each other and how we read the Bible. This isn't about whether we take the Bible seriously or not, it's just that we read the Bible differently. Uh, we've had the Mafia Commission, which was an eminent group of eminent people, not necessarily Anglican, who then went and uh, got responses from across the church and wrote a report that was delivered in 2014 with recommendations, out of which all of the radu radu has come, really. And then lately there's been two other working groups, and the last working group, uh, Cliff has talked about it to, our, to 
two of our services. And Ian said to me afterwards that although he wasn't super happy about the report of that working group, it turned out that that working group had been the wisdom of the Spirit of God. What they suggested worked. Enough of the church was willing to work with that so that the proposals could go through. So what does that mean? It means that we can now, somebody came to me, a gay couple, and said, can you bless our marriage? I can say yes. Can you bless our civil union? I can say yes, I can do that. And we can do it here as long as the vestry says yes. So that would be the first thing. It also means that churches like Holy Trinity that are clearly not going to be very happy about this have a place to stay in the church. So there's a thing called Christian Communities that's defined uh, what that means, what they have to adhere to, how they become recognised as a Christian community, how individuals become part of that, and they will have a visiting bishop who will oversee them. But they will still be part of their diocese. So if Holy Trinity become one of these Christian communities, they will still be part of Waipu. Bishop Andrew will still be their bishop. Bishop Andrew will still be the one who makes, writes out the licences, does all those kind of things. The visiting bishop's role is that they will be uh, an advisor to Bishop Andrew in terms of those parishes. And those visiting bishops have to come from this church. They can't be imported from overseas. And the House of Bishops said, we can work with that. We know each other, we trust each other. We think as a house we can make that work. So at the end of the, the debate, which was an honest debate, but it was done in good spirit, uh, nearly the whole of General Synod voted for these proposals. Now, there are, there are some people who have already left. It was too far. And there are others who aren't very happy with it because we can't offer marriage. But actually, and my daughter said to me, she sent me a text and went, how lame? Why aren't you offering marriage? I went... Do you know we're the only church that has really grappled with this and has got even this far? I mean, the Presbyterian just said, no, homosexuality is wrong. They should just leave. None of the other churches have discussed that. Maybe the Methodists, I'm not sure what they've decided formally. But we have actually made formal decisions on this. It's remarkable that we got this far and held each other together. And I would say that that's the Spirit of God at work. Taking people into places they never thought they would be comfortable going, and maybe still aren't, but they can live with that. They can see the Spirit of God at work. And the Spirit of God is offering hope in our country through that. One of the other things that happened was um, a few years ago our Social Justice Commission kind of had a crisis and uh, exploded and it had to be reconfigured. And so instead of employing one person, they've employed a half-time coordinator and his job was to kind of vision with others what might happen. And they decided they would have work groups on particular issues. And they, with uh, a group of them, got together and drew up a list of 50 people they could invite to the first meeting. These were Anglicans and Presbyterians and Methodists and Catholics and people of no religion no church affiliation at all who had a passion and interest in those areas and expertise and they said like 50's a lot should we invite them all and Archbishop Philip said yep invite them all, half of them won't want to be part of this, this is just an Anglican thing um, so we'll get a good working number. In the end nearly the whole 50 said yes because suddenly there is a church that says 
These are really important issues and we need to take them seriously and we want to be a voice in our society on these issues. One of those issues is criminal justice reform. And there's going to be some work, more work done on that advocating for a royal commission. Because our criminal justice system isn't working. We're just putting more and more people into prison, which means more and more people are being victims of crime. We need to find another way of dealing with our criminal justice system. I guess the big one for us, the last issue that I think was a really hope-filled moment and certainly was the highlight for me, was the motion uh, approving an apology to Nai Tamarabaho and Ngāti Tapu of Matapihi for the transfer of land uh, in 1866. So in 1838, when Brown came here, he bought the land uh, in two blocks. I mean, Cliff will tell you this, the technicalities of this. And bought, uh, with inverted commas around each end, meaning it was kind of a, you can use the land for this purpose, but if you ever stop, you have to give it back. And that land kind of comes up to, if, if the work that Cliff has done about where the trenches are, through the back of our church, really. And on one side was the land that was that was sold and on this land was Māori land. And that land was bought so that the mission could be self-sufficient but also that people like Brown could then teach European farming technology to Māori who could then apply it on their own lands and they were very good at learning that and applied it very successfully. But he also had bought it in trust. He knew that where European settlers came, Māori tended to lose all their land. So he wanted that block of land to be held in trust, so they had at least that block of land. But after the battles of Gate Pa and Taranga, the New Zealand government put huge pressure on the CMS land board to transfer that land to the New Zealand government for the establishment of the military settlement of Tauranga, so that when the British soldiers who wanted to retire, retired, they had somewhere where they could live and have farms. And for two years, the land board held out, but eventually in 1866 they gave in uh, to the much with still the objections of William Williams the bishop who was there, not as the bishop of Waipu but as a mission, an ex-missionary and Brown, they both objected but they were outvoted the board transferred that land and that had devastating effect, particularly for the two hapu who, were, who lost that land on the 29th of April we heard from Buddy about the cost for Naitamarawaho of losing that land and all their land. How they were reduced to subsistence squatters living on land that had been theirs and the incredible poverty that they were reduced to and how they are still climbing out of that poverty. And so last year, uh, Te Kohinga, which has been working uh, on some social justice issues, used... Uh, Alistair Reese's uh, thesis called Nabos Vineyard uh, and they went to Archbishop Philip and said we want to talk to the Anglican Church about this. So Archbishop David Moxon has been heading up that conversation and it resulted in this motion. So this isn't the end of the story, this is just the next step of the story. The spirit continues to blow through as we address this issue. And this moment was amazing, so as you can see uh, you can see that some representatives of um, the Automata Trust Board came down. 
Uh, so you can see Pere Kohu and Des Tata and Tipini, uh, um, Tommy Kapai Wilson's brother, uh, and then uh, Alistair Reese and James Muir are there, and then um, if they'd gone a bit further around, some uh, Kue were there as well, and if they'd been just slightly further around, you would have got my poppy. So I'm, I'm kind of right next to there. And um, so that group were welcomed to General Synod by Tiki Raumati, who was a uh, Taranaki Komatua, and uh, Piri responded. Uh, and then Bishop Philip moved the motion. So it was made clear this wasn't the apology. It was a motion saying that General Synod will, ap- will apologise. Uh, so Bishop Philip spoke about the process. Andrew spoke. Uh, Evan Turbot, our Chancellor, spoke. And uh, another priest from the East Coast spoke. And then in his right of, re- right of reply, Archbishop Philip said, well, I'm just going to read out the motion, but he, as he stood he didn't address General Synod, he turned around, as you can see in that photo and spoke to the people who had come to hear the debate and I and Bishop Andrew and others stood in support and Isaac from the East Coast uh, from Hawke's Bay, the young Māori who'd moved the motion about climate change then stood and basically told General Synod that they should be standing as well, so this young person providing leadership, and the whole of General Synod stood as Archbishop Philip read out that motion. It was an amazingly powerful moment. Uh, after that motion was unanimously agreed to, um, Chris Hudawai, Douglas, who uh, some of us know, he was here as the missioner for a year, uh, responded on behalf of Ngāti Tapu, and uh, Pere Kohu responded on behalf of Ngāi Tamarawaho, and then before anyone could wire in response, Isaac from the east, uh, from Hawke's Bay, uh, Nati Kahunganu stood and responded because uh, Nati Ranginui and Nati Kahunganu are both Takitimu, Waka. Uh, and so he sang his wire reminding them that they were Fanonga through that Waka. And he stood in support of them and General Synod. A young person again providing leadership for our general synod. The Spirit of God keeps blowing. It keeps blowing us uh, out of our comfort zones. It keeps blowing us into places where sometimes we'd rather not be. And that might happen for us. Who knows what's going to happen for us on this land after that motion. It's exciting and it's a little bit worrying. and, And we'll see what's going to happen. It blows the church in that whole process. Lots of people didn't want to even begin to discuss gay marriage. But we got there because the Spirit of God blew through us, offering hope, offering peace, just as it did right at the beginning. And so Pentecost isn't about what happens 2,000 years ago. It's about what happens today, how the Spirit of God is blowing through us and taking us out of our comfort zones so that we can be a peaceful people who offer peace and hope in our communities. Well, all of us were given, hopefully, a little candle with a holder on it. And we're going to do, we're going to do things a little bit different. So we're going to do the passing of the peace. And we're going to do it by me lighting my candle from the Paschal candle. And then I'm going to pass the peace, which is this flame... And we are going to pass that peace to each other, lighting each other's candles. And then as we think about how the Spirit of God continues to work 
to bring peace and hope to the world, I'm going to invite us to come up and to plant our candles in the boxes. Hopefully there's enough sand there, and if there's not, well, we'll just jam them in and then we'll have to blow them out. And then we will have the prayers that someone will read from the lectern. So it's very different, isn't it? It's a very different Anglican service, and we still haven't even opened our prayer books. It's quite disturbing. So, the peace of Christ be with you.